This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Thank you for choosing Bobcast for all your Bovink and Bovink accessories. Bovvy needs. I'm Andrew Smith, and I'm Caleb Castro. We are here to uh, provide you with your Bovvy needs. Yeah. So whatever that how is. How the Bov are you, Andrew? I'm just as good as I was at the start of the last episode because we're recording on the same day. That's a rarity. <laughs> right? Us actually making linear forward progress? Yeah. This means we are talking a little more easily about this than some others. But now let's get right. into this convoluted topic. Yay! Yay. Convolution. Yay! You say you want a bit of convolution. So we've been talking about the covenant of grace. We started last time by looking at some general introduction relationship between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and obviously where we see the two come together in genesis 3 where the covenant of works is broken in the fall and the covenant of grace is entered into but now we want to pick up with what comes after some preliminary material and then getting into the noahic covenant the covenant with noah After Genesis 3, after the fall, and then after this proto-evangelion, this giving of the first gospel, this first revelation of the covenant of grace, there remains man's duty to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. It's going to be more difficult. There's curses on the ground, curses on childbearing. It's going to be different than it was originally purposed to be in the Covenant of Works, where things were in a state of blessedness and without sin. It doesn't take long for this to become very quickly apparent in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. From the outset, Adam and Eve are already expecting immediate fulfillment You can see this in how they name their children. These names represent some kind of anticipation of an imminent fulfillment of the covenant of grace, which doesn't come. But what does happen is we see in Cain and Abel, of course, this famous first murder. We see that Abel brings a sacrifice of a young lamb. Cain brings a sacrifice of produce. The Lord finds favor with Abel. He does not find favor with Cain. Cain, in his anger and jealousy, kills his brother. And for this, Cain is cursed. He is cast out. He is separated from the rest of the people. He is marked. Excommunicated. Right. Yeah, this is, de facto, the first excommunication from the church. So what happens after that is there is the development of two wines. Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And this is the wine of God's people. These are the ones who believe God, worship God. But then you have from the line of Cain, the development of civilization, the development of culture. You have also, though, with that, the development of evil, the development of wickedness. 
So with culture, you see, for instance, Cain has a son, Enoch, who builds a city. So you have the introduction of city building, obviously something important to culture. You look a little further down the line, though, of Cain's genealogy in Genesis 4, you see this man, Lamech. And with Lamech, you see decline, you see decay. He takes two wives. This is the first instance of bigamy or polygamy in the Bible. Now, a lot of people like to try to find fault with the Bible because many in the Bible practice bigamy or polygamy. But the fact of the matter is, it's never presented in the Bible in a positive light. And that goes all the way back to here where this is the first time it happens. And it's a bad thing because Lamech is a violent man. He's a murderer, we see. And he's being brutish and intimidating even to these wives. Basically, Lamech is rebelling against God. You know, the created order was for one man and for one woman, one husband and one wife. And Lamech is rebelling against that. And then Lamech is also usurping justice. He says in Genesis 4.23, I have killed a man for wounding me. So a disproportionate application of justice a young man for striking me, or if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, basically exalting himself to believe himself to be something of the greatest man who ever lived. The best. The best. The best. You have to appreciate a couple uh, elements of irony here, and also perhaps it causes some confusion for uh, maybe those outside of Reformed churches, broad evangelicalism and whatnot, of what is occurring here, those who aren't aware of the antithesis, if you will. In one way, again, those who might see like, oh, God is permitting bigamy or whatever. Lamech is, in one sense, we see that he is aware of what God told Cain. We see that he knows what the word of God promised to Cain in preserving Cain's life despite Cain shedding the blood of his brother. He acted in, if you will, common grace. You already have God showing his benevolence in a complete undeserved mercy towards Cain when, again, just like with Adam and Eve in the garden, God could have blotted out Cain immediately. But God spared him and even said that he will take vengeance on those who would shed Cain's blood. So God preserves his life, and Lamech is aware of this. He knows here this part of the word of God. He knows this story of God's works in common grace. And so Lamech is giving an enormous slap in the face to God's mercy here. On the other end, you have an irony that it is from Cain's line, as Andrew mentioned, that uh, civilization, the building of a city, is carried forward. You have Cain's line that is complying with the original command to Adam in the garden to be fruitful and multiply the earth and to subdue it. So you have in the line of the children of the devil, in the spirit of darkness, if you will, of some sort, as the ones that are carrying out maybe even unknowingly, the mandate, the cultural mandate. And so they're, they're developing culture. So maybe it's hard to detect some of this because this is occurring in chapter four, uh, especially the part of Lamech. This is occurring in something of uh, what sounds to be a positive passage. Because you, you have, uh, oh, here's the building of the city uh, from Cain, right? You have Jabal and you have Jubal. You have the uh, development of music and the arts. 
you have Tubal Cain with creating uh, tools, creating instruments for work and bronze and iron. So you, you have this, this very positive thing of like, oh, they're developing stuff. They're making stuff. They're, they're doing some good things. Well, they're, they're doing it by virtue of the line of the first murderer. And this is all something that God is working out for common grace. And not even just that Cain himself was a murderer, but you see in Lamech's rebellion and in his arrogance that this was not something that stopped with Cain. It wasn't like his descendants were the the innocent collateral damage of Cain's sin. There were problems of their own, but also these advances, these developments in culture in this line. Despite man's wickedness, then, they nonetheless are taking part in the development of this world, and they are ultimately serving the total purposes of the kingdom of God. They uh, make things in this world, they do things in this world that do ultimately serve to sometimes be benefits and enjoyments for the children of the seed, right. for the covenant line. So they work and operate in God the Creator's world, even though they deny and reject him. And are even used in means that are helpful for God's people. I think that's a helpful thing then to also see that even though unbelievers, like here in the children of the devil, in this line of Cain, uh, they can do some kind of earthly good. We see in this chapter of Genesis 4 that their ultimate failure, no matter what good they produce, no matter what works they do with their hands, no matter what humanitarian efforts or whatever— they nonetheless have a moral failure, the first primary issue of separation from God after the fall. Right. And we see the contrast at the end of Genesis 4 with the birth of Seth, the other brother after Abel is dead and Cain is cast out. And then we see born to Seth Enosh. And then we see this last line. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see here in the line of Seth, the preservation of true religion, if you will, the preservation of the worship of God, the preservation of the covenant of grace within a broader world that is not entirely apart or not compliant with that. And this sets the stage for Noah, which we take up in Genesis 6. The early part of Genesis 6 particularly, it's one of the more difficult and controversial and disputed passages in all of Scripture as to what's going on, particularly these first few verses. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said... My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And the Nephilim were also on the earth in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now this passage has opened itself to varying interpretations. For instance, who are the sons of God and the sons of man? Well, Consistent with what we have been laying out here with these two lines, these two peoples, these two cities, to use the Augustinian terms, because this isn't something that just began with Reformed theology. It goes all the way back then to the city of God in Augustine and was already being developed then. 
But from these two wines, then the sons of God, those would be the sons of Seth, you know, those who belong to God's people. And they start to intermarry with the sons of Cain, those who do not belong to God, those who are not his people. So there's this intermarriage, and as we see all throughout the Bible, and as we see practically even in our world today, intermarriage between God's people and those who are not God's people produces great corruption. Now, Andrew. Yes. What you're saying here is that what's being spoken of, these are not angels, these are not fallen angels that are going down and impregnating the women of the world. Right. Okay, so... Right. Some have <laughs> taken that view. Uh, it's kind of a popular, controversial, theological view that people like to take. But no, I, I think the explanation is something much more simple and natural. And like I say, consistent with this theology of the antithesis that we're unpacking here. So, a fast side note on this now, uh, just for fun. Andrew, have you ever watched, what is it? I think in like, what was it, maybe 2006 or seven or something, there was that movie with uh, Russell Crowe, Noah. No. Oh, we should. I, I deliberately avoided that. You know what? If we ever do something like Patreon, if we ever get like uh, enough listeners or something to to do fun things like that, we should do a live viewing and commentary on the movie Noah. Um, they have that scene there where Noah is building the ark with his family. The floodwaters are coming out and you have the Nephilim who are like these giant golems and are said to be fallen angels going around and busting up people and killing them all. It's just ridiculous. And meanwhile, you have, people are trying to scramble onto the ark and Noah's got like his craftsman's axe and he's like hacking away at people. It's... <laughs> Huh. It is a weird it is the weirdest movie. Yeah, so so not that. Yeah, definitely not that. Yeah, no. This is just more intermarriage and corruption between these two wines, between the the city of God and the city of man, and that leads to judgment. The wickedness is multiplying, it's getting out of control, and so God decides that he is going to bring an end to this. Now, also this view of Genesis 6 regarding the intermarriage between the Sethites and the Cainites, that's not just us. That is also the view that Bovink takes of Genesis 6-5. He does this on pages 217 and 218 of Volume 3 of Reformed Dogmatics. So what we're going to do here is summarize through a quote from Bovink in Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 3, pages 217 to 218 that uh, Andrew has selected here that does a great job in encapsulating what occurs with the flood account and its significance in terms for the covenant. So here's Bobink. So this was a period so full of iniquity as would never come again until its return in the days of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 37. In a calamitous flood, this whole generation disappears, except for Noah's family, which then becomes the nucleus of a second humanity. The period after the flood is essentially different from that before the flood. In the time from Adam to Noah, nature, the world of plants and animals, as well as humankind, bore a very different character from that of the time following. Powerful and copiously supplied with gifts, the world was, as it were, left to itself for a time. But it soon became evident that if God did not forcefully intervene, the world would perish in its own wickedness. 
With Noah, therefore, a new period begins. The grace that manifested itself immediately after the fall now exerted itself more forcefully in the restraint of evil. God made a formal covenant with all his creatures. This covenant with Noah in Genesis uh, chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, and chapter 9, verses 1 to 17, though it is rooted in God's grace and is most intimately bound up with the actual covenant of grace because it sustains and prepares for it, it is not identical with the covenant of grace. It is rather a covenant of long-suffering made by God with all humans and even with all creatures. It limits the curse on the earth. It checks nature and curbs its destructive power. The awesome violence of water is reined in. A regular alternation of seasons is introduced. The whole of the irrational world of nature is subjected to ordinances that are anchored in God's covenant. And the rainbow is set in the clouds as a sign and as a pledge. So note particularly there at the end, uh, his, his words, these subjected to ordinances. We're talking about ordinances. We're talking about basically particular orderings, particular organizations and institutions in which God sets up. So in sum, now we understand that wickedness on the earth was so great that it would have totally eradicated humanity. Okay, so this this was a threat. And if this was a threat then to humanity, it was also a threat to Jesus Christ's coming, the incarnate Son of God being born of the Virgin Mary as the fulfillment of the promised seed of the woman. So God is in one way, yes, showing his grace and his mercy in, first of all, restraining evil and preserving mankind by introducing the flood. But even more significantly, to the glory of God, he is preserving the line for the sake of Jesus Christ coming, okay, that there would be a mediator. So in order for God's glory to go out and his fame to be spread abroad, he is preserving the covenant line and the Messiah will ultimately be revealed from it. And this is important to consider in this Noahic covenant as far as how does the Noahic covenant relate to the broader covenant of grace. There are approaches and systems that sort of treat it as more separate and distinct from the covenant of grace. And there is a sense in which there are some differences. There is a more universal nature of it. It is made with all creation, but it ultimately serves the purpose of the covenant of grace, the covenant of God redeeming his particular people. It provides a world. It provides a society. It provides a framework for that work of redemption to occur. To put it in terms that we've talked about before in our looking at wonderful works and other things in Bavink, general revelation serves special revelation. Common grace serves special grace. It is oriented for those purposes and towards that end. It's not something acting completely distinct. And in addition, it is, in some sense, preparatory in that way for what is received in special grace for the people of God. It is preserving knowledge of the Creator and the restraint of sin, but its context is the covenant of grace. So there is a distinction, though they are related. Now, there are those who would disagree with the notion of common grace in that 
they don't like the term uh, used of grace. And so there's something of a question of, can we refer to anything that is not going to result in the salvation of the individual? Can we refer to it as grace? So if this covenant, if this promise is made by God to all of creation, to all creatures, including then wicked man, in the reprobate. If God makes this covenant to not destroy the earth again and to restrain sin, can we call this grace? It is not salvific. It is not saving grace for those reprobates. So this this gets to be a point of a heated discussion, you know, in, in various strands of Reformed theology. Perhaps just simply an easy way of putting it is, you know, many will like to talk about this as simply as providence. It's an aspect of God's providence in continuing to preserve the world, but that all things that the world enjoys, all things that non-believers do and enjoy, basically racking up condemnation upon their heads. Them continuing to be sustained in life is judgment over them because they continue to deny God, and everything that they receive ultimately must serve the children of God, the elect. But... I think we can simply say we can very much recognize that God has a mercy, a creaturely love, a love for his creature and those who he has put his image in. Because they are a work of his hand and were created good, even very good, even though they are not good anymore because of the fall, there is still an aspect of love and mercy in which God extends Some will say the image of God was destroyed entirely in the reprobate after the fall. The reprobates do not have the image of God. But if that were the case, they would cease to have any personhood at all. They would cease to have any identity, any, frankly, any existence. They would not be man. And I think if you look at that, even just in light of what we've seen here with Cain and his line, I mean, again... There would have been nothing unjust or unfair if at the time where Cain murders Abel, he's just swept away and destroyed. The same with all his line and the wickedness they fall into. And yet they are allowed to live. They are allowed to propagate for a time. Eventually, as we see with the flood, there there has to come an end to that simply because things become so bad that there is risk of destroying everything, of destroying all of humanity, of destroying the world. And then the world has to be, in a sense, begun again with greater restraint on the wickedness of man. But even that restraint is common grace. It allows the world to continue. It allows even sinful people to live, to be alive, to not be destroyed by their own wickedness, at least not immediately. One more point to bring up from what Bobink was speaking of in this quote, uh, again with this word of the irrational world of nature being subjected to ordinances anchored in God's covenant. Bobink had mentioned that before the flood, the world operated in a different way. The world of animal and plants and nature had a very different character. Now, what Reformed theologians will uh, typically speak of here is that what occurs at the time of the flood is basically a suspension of the created order of the natural way things operated. Again, before the flood, the world looked very different. People lived to long ages. There was the mist that rose up and watered the earth and keeping it cool. But the operations of nature, uh, the created order, are ceased in the way that they were operating. 
the heavens open up. The earth is entirely flooded. After the waters recede, God makes this promise with Noah. And essentially what occurred was a new structure, a new way that the world would be operating, a new way for the laws of nature were coming into play. So it's something of a new created structure. This is where you get him mentioning you have a variation of seasons, of seed time and harvest, okay, of summer and winter. There's a difference then in the operations of the world prior to the flood, and then it being reordered or restructured for life after the flood. And we still continue in this order today. When Christ returns, there will be, again, a ceasing of the present order, like at the time of the world being destroyed by the flood. The world shall be destroyed by fire, as uh, 2 Peter 3 says. There will be a suspension of this present order, and things will be reordered, renewed from the same materials, from the same essences, rather, and we'll have a new created order that will function differently from this present one. So this gives us already right here something of a paradigm of the new heavens and new earth. So it's pointing towards that. Well, and just to your point there... I mean, Jesus even puts it in similar terms, describing the end of the age. In Luke chapter 17, uh, when he's describing the coming of the kingdom, when he's describing the end of the age, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So this isn't just an abstract parallel. This is a connection that Christ himself draws between what was going on with Noah. And then you see another picture of it later in Sodom and Gomorrah. So too will it be when Christ returns. What's interesting in terms of continuity from prior to the flood is that God has man continue with the cultural mandate. And in order for the cultural mandate to go forward, the institution of marriage is still necessary. Okay, So God has an interest in the preservation of human life, as we've been talking about already through his sparing Adam and Eve through his sparing Cain, and now in providing a remnant through Noah. Uh, all of this for the sake of bringing about the seed. So man is still to be fruitful and multiply. Noah's sons and daughters-in-laws are uh, still preserved. And now humans are to remain dominant over all the creatures of the earth, which you have in the beginning of Genesis 9, with the pronouncement of animals being afraid of man in that they will have an account in shedding man's blood. God's interest here is preserving human life, those made in his image, over and above the creatures of the earth who were not made in his image. And so man is to continue on with the cultural mandate. After the flood, man begins to populate again in the earth, and uh, you have government, you have cities flourishing once more but we also have immediately after the flood yet again a division between the two lines a division between the two cities later in genesis 9 after the giving of the noahic covenant you have the sin of ham where ham sees his father's nakedness and he and his line are cursed 
And this works out in history of becoming peoples that are against and hostile to the people of God coming from the line of Ham. Yeah, and through the mouth of Noah, you have God pronouncing curse against Ham's descendants, and uh, among those descendants being Canaan. Which who has to be driven out of the land in the time of the Exodus when the people were brought into the promised land. It is the descendants of Canaan. It is those people. Now, another thing, too, and this is kind of maybe building towards where we're going, for instance, when we get into Abraham and perhaps even into baptism and issues of the like, is note how the covenant functions through family lines. It's not just individuals. It's not just everybody individually deciding for or against or which they belong to. There is a definite connection, a correlation, a movement through family lines as to the continuity of the covenant of grace. So maybe just to whet your appetite for some later discussions we'll get into. (laughs) Right. And at the same time, how this determined through God himself. It is God who is choosing the families and it is God who is discriminating among the members even in those families such as we have here with ham now shem and japheth shem is giving the prominent favoring of god uh, as the one who will produce as his offspring abraham or abram so you you have coming from shem's line the one who is given the major and clear promise of the covenant of grace At this time, you have, though, with the development of society once more, the account of Babel, of course, where uh, I do want to make a quick note on Babel as playing a strong role in the covenant of grace for later in the future. So with Babel, you have the people of the world collating, gathering together at this single point in looking to build this great city. People will often talk about it as being a ziggurat, them building this tower, this great big ziggurat reaching high into the heavens. But what's occurring there is that that ziggurat may not have been anything uh, significant in terms of its height, but rather uh, the ziggurat culturally in ancient Near Eastern history, the door of the ziggurat was basically designed as a house for the national god for the god of those people they were trying to build one great big central city a widespread city where all man could be together and they were creating the ziggurat as basically trying to encapsulate they were trying to basically bind god to this temple to this particular ziggurat so they were in a way seeking to channel god and basically call upon him as a genie of sorts to their own purposes and uses for their own benefits. One of the big problems aside from that was though that you had the people looking to stay in one spot on the earth and this is directly against the cultural mandate that God had given to be fruitful and to multiply, to spread across the earth. So they are not going out and doing what God commanded again right after the flood. So That is why God then brings in confusion, and he essentially creates ethnicities right here at this moment with the introduction of many languages, and God forcibly has man then, as a result of those languages, spread to the earth. So you have God's divine hand in the introduction of languages of making man spread to the four corners of the earth, and this will play out later on with Pentecost, when God sends the Spirit 
God will then be calling men from all nations, no longer just Israel, but he'll be using the Jewish disciples, the apostles, to stand in the streets of Jerusalem, speaking in tongues in many languages that the people in the cultural hub of Jerusalem hear in their own tongues. They're hearing the accounts of God, who he is, and the people regather. You have this gathering in of the nation, something of a reversal of Babel. So again, you can see how all of this is really tying in. From the very beginning, God is fulfilling his cultural mandate, and he will ultimately do it through Jesus Christ. And this is where we see the relation between Noah, the covenant with Noah, and the covenant of grace, all of it sort of building towards the coming of Christ and the work of Christ in the church. We see bits and pieces of it in the Old Testament. We see the things that put us in that direction, but that is ultimately where we're going. So with that, we're out of time for this week's Bobcast. We hope you've enjoyed studying with us and looking at the Noahic Covenant and the implications of it and the Covenant of Grace more broadly. If you have any questions, of course, you can always email us at bobcast at gmail.com. Reach out to us on social media. And we appreciate you listening. If you like what you've heard, you can leave us a review. Tell your friends. Get the word out. Uh, We're hoping that we're doing something here that's helpful to you and helpful to the church, and we'll continue to do that. So until next time, when we'll take up more of the Covenant of Grace, looking at Abraham and other topics, totzines. Totzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.